Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. Hey there, listener of podcast. I have a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Okay. So that happened. This week, the early stages of the 2016 presidential election collided headlong with the phenomenon of vaccine denialism, with two candidates ending up in intensive care for foot and mouth disease. We'll talk about who took a hit and who managed to avoid this nonsense. Meanwhile, the Obama budget is out, and from the looks of it, it seems the president wants to swing for the fences on infrastructure, early childhood care, and increased federal spending. But did he notice the Congress is controlled by the GOP? Finally, this was a big week for Downton Abbey-inspired congressional interior decoration scandals. We'll explain how it came to pass that I could put all those words in that previous sentence. I'm Jason Lincolns with Arthur Delaney and Sabrina Siddiqui. The saddest thing about the dead kid in that nationwide Super Bowl ad is that he didn't live long enough to hear this podcast. So here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of So That It Happened. I'm here today with... Arthur Delaney. Yes, and joining us today... Sabrina Siddiqui. And I'm Jason Lincolns. We have so much to talk about today. Uh, first, we'll talk about the 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 matter that has reared its head in the 2016 election. Gloriously. Gloriously, I guess. Ingloriously, maybe, perhaps? The subject is vaccines, and it set the world on fire this week. It was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. And it was all triggered by a Republican governor abroad who fumbled a question about it from British reporters, Chris Christie in, in London. Why can't Republican candidates ever get it right when they're in London? It's, well, I mean, there's <laughs> just been the two. It's just been Chris Christie and That's enough. Romney. That's we a don't trend. even have enough for a trend piece. We need a third. Well, here, So here's what, here's what... Give it like two months. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Let, you're me, right. let me do the recap. Yeah. There is a measles outbreak with more than 100 people infected, and it is largely due to vaccine deniers or people who are merely selfish and don't think that they should make their kids get these shots that are that prevent things like measles. Yeah, so they, there's a, a measles outbreak, uh, more cases than we've had in the past 10 years or so. It's a, it's a, a major public health problem. And Chris Christie said, yeah, well, you know, I vaccinate my kids, but there should be some parental choice. Right. The, I mean, the, the, the biggest part of that story is, of course, that people are denying their children vaccines out of fear that the vaccines themselves cause autism. This is a uh, and this is and this is a this is a story that's been uh, persistent through for, 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 I don't know, past seven years, 10 mm-hmm. years. And, you know, just to put it out there awkwardly enough, you know, a lot of the lies about um Vaccines connections to autism is spread on our pages here at the Huffington Post. Uh, we're not alone in that, uh, but you know it is. You know we bear some responsibility for the spread of this misinformation. And I think that the I think that the movement behind 
blaming vaccines for autism is the fact that parents of autistic kids uh, are quite desperate. Uh, they, they have a child that can't grow up a normal child. And autism is a condition that tears apart families. It's very stressful. So it's a, it's a, it's a world in which we need sanity. And this week, we didn't get it. Well, listen, you won't find that stuff on our pages these days. Correct. So uh, let's talk about where the problem is. It is uh, not really a partisan problem, but we happened to have Republican politicians stepping in it with Chris Christie trying to have it both ways, saying, yes, I vaccinated, I believe in vaccinations, people should, but there should be a choice. In the context of a measles outbreak, that sounds foolish. And then, and then what? And we had uh, Rand and Paul. Rand Paul went on a big rant about it and went further than Chris Christie and talked about how parents essentially own their children and have the right to make that decision. <laughs> and of course, citing his own medical expertise as he is, as he loves to do. The great. Is he an op- He's an ophthalmologist. Op- ophthalmologist. Sometimes Rand practicing. Paul, yeah. Sometimes yes. practicing. Yeah. Um, you know, try to explain that there are legitimate concerns and and give credibility to the link uh, that parents, some parents fear. However, I think it's interesting because after the uproar around Chris Christie and Rand Paul's comments, you had the rest of the candidates take a look and be like, well, we don't want to be that guy. So then they just rushed out, whether Marco Rubio, Bobby Jindal, uh, just kind of vehemently coming out in support of vaccines. Jeb Even Bush. Ben Carson, yeah. Jeb Bush. It was like this sudden like domino effect where you could just see them like getting on the phone with their chief of staff or someone being like, do I support vaccines? Tell me now. Tell me why I should. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible that Ben Carson... Is it government overreach? Not, not or is it not staff. government overreach? <laughs> That's what we need to decide now. It's funny we talk about gov- government overreach and all this because it was, in fact the esteemed governor of New Jersey who, for no reason at all other than fear and stupidity, uh, imprisoned a a nurse who did not have Ebola over fear that the government had absolutely a duty to do whatever was necessary to protect public safety. And now he's kind of like, except for this part, we just don't think we have any role in that. Well, people are like, what a contradiction, but it was consistent. Was it, it though? Yeah, in, right, in his uh, not listening to to epidemiologists and medical professionals. <laughs> that, okay, fair enough. In There's both some cases, consistency. He went with his gut <laughs> yes. instead of what experts say. There's but a what, very easy joke. Oh, what, I think uh, we have a happy ending to this story because by Wednesday evening, Rand Paul was really trying to tamp it down. He brought a reporter to Even take pictures. Even Christie was. Right. They yeah. both were. Uh, they had already backtracked a little bit, and they ba- they continued backtracking – and it had become clear by the middle of the week that while this may have been a, a partisan story at the on Monday and Tuesday, it didn't have it wasn't going to continue that way. And it was really just a couple of guys who looked like outliers and Republicans and Democrats had gotten on the same page. And that's good for public health, because if this had entrenched itself as Republicans against Democrats, I think that would have given uh, comfort to people who for whatever ideological reason they have, they have another to say, I'm skeptical of vaccines. It's something Democrats, you know, liberals want me to do. So thank goodness uh, it didn't look like, it looks like that's not going to happen. I think the people who want to end the denialism around vaccines warn 
about making it a politicized or partisan issue because of the fact that once you get wrapped up into the warp and wane of tribal politics, uh, <clears throat> it tends to take it to some crazy places. Yes, and there were columnists. I think uh, Jamel Bowie on, at Slate was a great example, uh, a very liberal writer who wrote something very measured and uh, clearly sought to understand the position of conservatives who were annoyed that it had been made into a partisan story. Uh, and, 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 Dem- and some Dem- – you know, they held their fire a little bit because there, I think there was an awareness that this – if it did become an insane partisan story – it could have backfire as a public health crisis. Though we may still have a major measles crisis on our hands anyway. I think we clearly do. That There's a measles crisis anywhere. It's a, a big problem for this country. We eradicated this disease. And it had the potential definitely to get partisan very quickly because what happened was since Chris Christie was the first – sort of figure to be to speak on it and happen to happens to be Republican and, and prominent because of his candidacy, potential candidacy, you had all of these Republican uh, operatives and flax shoot these emails to reporters saying, you know, did you notice, though, that Obama also gave credence to this argument back in 2007, 2008? And what they were referring to is was misinterpreted as a result in a way because they just pointed to some comments he made at the time referenced in a newspaper saying, you know, there are some concerns and, 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 and about vaccines and, and this person is afraid or something like to those. It was, yeah, it was but he was pointing at someone at a town it, yeah, hall and specifically this said. This person included. Right. This a lot person, of people thought, oh, by this person included, it was the. He had two it thumbs. Was him. Yeah. This person this is, guy included. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And he was actually pointing to someone at a I town hall. I thought he was still if perilously I, close to pandering to. Uh, I think so, too. I mean, if I had just heard audio of that, I would have totally assumed that he was the this person when he talked about right. this person. And but, it's and it's a legitimate thing. Like you said, it, he's not complete. He wasn't completely rejecting as forcefully as he did the other night uh, before the Super Bowl or during the Super Bowl. I'm bad at when that interview happened. but It was you know, before the Super Bowl. That was when he said... No one's going to watch that, an interview with Obama after the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> that, was when, uh, that was when he unequivocally said, you know, people should vaccinate their children. Yeah, he said, there's no reason to not. The science is clear. The science yeah. is clear is also something he said. So obviously he has come out more forcefully now compared with when he was in a way pandering. But that just shows you the, the hypersensitive way that we all react to these things where, you know, the headlines are about Republican candidates and people feel sen- sensitive and defensive and like, nope, Obama also expressed some skepticism. So, Why don't you cover that? So we didn't get uh, it didn't become the the tribal politics firestorm it could have. But something did happen as a result of this story that I found amusing and I think Rand Paul really had a meltdown this week. It started uh, when he's when <laughs> on TV he shushed a reporter and, yeah. and uh, a female reporter. He put his his finger to his lips and said, "Shh." That was on a, a CNBC dog. reporter, right? And he also said, "Free market temple priestess," right? And he said, <laughs> uh, "You know, vaccines are good, but parents have come up to me." And their children were walking and talking and then had serious mental disorders after they got these shots, vaccine, vaccinations. And then, so what are you talking about, Rand Paul? That's pure vaccine trutherism. 
And his, in typical Rand Paul fashion, he said something outrageous, the media piled on, and then he petulantly refused to acknowledge that he had even said it, much less apologize and atone for it. He said, I only noted that people said this to me and that there was they believed there was a temporal relation. And then he allowed a New York Times reporter, the great Jeremy Peters, to accompany him to get a shot. A vaccine. And so there's a photo of Rand Paul being vaccinated so that he could tell you getting a he does Burst indeed tattoo. believe <laughs> that vaccinations are important. You see? Yeah. So I put the ice in me. <laughs> yeah. It's like the most Rand Paul thing you could possibly do. It's like, how do I fix this? So let me actually yeah, have like some high profile reporter come it's funny. He and watch me. He can't even atone for what he did without being somewhat haughty about it. <laughs> He was extremely haughty. And, uh, but then Jeremy Peters the next day did another story noting Rand Paul's long association with a quack medical group that has implied not only a link between autism and vaccines but abortion and breast cancer and, and uh, other questionable things. A group he spoke you know, in front of during his Senate campaign, and, and I believe he uh, you know, uh, accepted money for them for his campaign while he's been in office. So his response to this was total anger. The Washington Post followed up with him on uh, Wednesday, <laughs> and the story on Thursday morning was like, Rand Paul is not ready for the big time. And it sort of recounted how he got upset that people were calling him on his gaffes and that this is not a way for a fringy guy who is flirting with uh, vaccine nuts to try to become a mainstream successful politician. And a, a great moment in this piece by uh, uh, David Farenthold, he emailed uh, Rand's spokesman and said, can you say something about how your week has had all these missteps? And the guy just responded, seriously? And, and Farenthold <laughs> wrote in the story, yes, seriously. You, you know what makes it so easy to vaccinate Rand Paul? What's that? The thin skin. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what he does. He uh, he gets really cranky. It's just, it's to me proof that he's not quite ready for prime time. I mean, this came up with the plagiarism thing too. When exactly. He, when there is a trend, um, of course, of plagiarism in his speeches that was openly printed uh, across the media, and he accused journalists of getting it wrong, even though they <laughs> showed right. the paragraphs that he had lifted almost verbatim in some cases. From, and uh, he from the said, Wikipedia and page he, of a sci-fi And then, novel. because he can't ever... <laughs> exactly. And then, because he, he has to be haughty, as we said, he went out and, and said, if I were these people's journalism professor, I would give them an F. And I was kind of thinking, well, you know, Senator, you would get an F for plagiarizing, so... <laughs> You would be expelled. <laughs> I don't understand in terms of accepting responsibility and saying, you know, you may have gotten something somewhat wrong. That's just not on his radar. So how are you going to go through a campaign with this kind of constant scrutiny? It, it makes him mad. He can't cope with it. He can't move on from it without complaining. It, it seems unlikely that he would be able to do this uh, with one meltdown after another. Uh, but he gets mulligans. I mean, yep. the plagiarism, Who I, I barely even remember that. Yep. We all moved on, even though plagiarism uh, has really tanked some more notable candidacies like Joe Biden's. Yeah, luckily for him. A ways back. John uh, Walsh, though. He gave uh, uh, John Walsh. Talk about that one. That was this 
well, interim senator from Montana. Who, that plagi- was a, who plagiarized yeah. the paper. Who plagiarized the paper. In a military and college. And then draw, and I think because it was a military college and it well, got because very, it was college in general, I think it was much more serious. And, and, and what college, was the effect on his campaign? He suspended it. See, and uh, I, I think Rand Paul, for some, because people like the idea of him, because he's a little more exciting than most kids, because he is different, mm-hmm. reporters are like, okay, let's keep writing about Rand. He's going to keep pushing forward. Uh, but he gets mulligans for this it, stuff, which I, guess, I find very curious. I guess he makes good copy. Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. Well, let's now talk about the other big news story. Maybe a little boring. We're going to talk about budget. Obama's uh, budget came out today. Sexiest topic ever. Yeah, totally. Uh, this, I'm already getting warm inside <laughs> talking about this. So, so uh, Arthur, or who, who's going to talk me through this budget thing? Who's going to do it? Well, like, like with the State of the Union, the Obama administration has now established a pattern where they want a big news event. Instead of releasing the budget or making the speech and then doing follow-up, they actually start promoting major pieces of it in advance. Mm-hmm. So that the media feasts on it and doesn't get bored after one day. So that's what they did in the big story was that they're going to ignore the sequestration caps. They don't want to abide by Republican limits on federal spending. And I think that one of the other um, things they really wanted to do was take the president's State of the Union uh, blueprint and just put it all on paper because it's this everyone talked we talked in fact in one of these podcasts about how the state of the union was this big liberal night for Obama like laying out a lot of the priorities that the base has been waiting uh, for him on especially since many of the principles or, or policies that they would like to see I should say have been mired by the politics around elections and his inability to kind of put out policies that would be questionable for vulnerable Democrats or so or difficult. So now you have this this budget that really champions uh, liberal priorities and in many ways, of course, ra- raises taxes on the wealthiest corporations as well as Americans um, in exchange for investment in things like infrastructure and uh, putting more money into safety net programs, expanding Head Start, uh, legalizing DC weed. Legalizing DC right. weed. Maybe not not just expanding Head Start, but t- taking a whole new, very specific, very um, prioritized approach to early childhood education in general. Early childhood because Head Start college. has always kind of been thought of as that thing that's getting it done, and I think that I think that we see that there's like a much more holistic approach is needed to early childhood education and also early childhood care we've been on this to- we've been on this podcast before talking about how just the pure unadulterated real life work of most Americans who have kids uh makes 
simply the issue of where do I stash my kid when I'm when I'm working my nine to five. Huge issue, yeah. Gigantic issue. And this this dedicates a lot of money and a lot of effort toward it. So, Sabrina, about the State of the Union, you had observed that it, he was talking basically like he had Democrats hadn't been pummeled mm-hmm. in the midterm election. You think the State of the Union was it? When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. As if he wasn't delivering it to a fully Republican Congress, and he's like, "I'm not, I'm not giving, I'm not doing this for you, Republicans. I'm not going to present something that I think you'll like." And that's exactly what you see in in the budget. It's 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 as though Democrats control both chambers of Congress. There is not um, an effort which he has made in previous budgets to meet them halfway or more than halfway, I should say, when they're not really giving anything in his mind or, or open to giving anything in return. So we know, and Arthur, you've covered this a lot, that chain CPI uh, has been in his what, at least one of his previous budgets. And oh, that, yeah, they stopped doing and that. They, well, they stopped doing it, but there there was the question of now that Republicans control both chambers of Congress and Paul Ryan is out there talking about how maybe we could meet Obama on some of these issues, but we'd have, he'd have we'd expect some entitlement reform. And he put those feelers out there, Paul Ryan, of course, now the chair of the Ways and Means You were at an event with him, weren't you? With Paul Ryan. Yeah. Was I? I don't think I was. Uh, he, he was talking about... That was doing, Brian Williams. Uh, <laughs> he was at I don't know, the Paul fog Ryan. of my memory there was expand, is... A t- talk of expanding uh, earned income tax credit oh. and, uh, and talk of whether Republicans would accept this idea, which Paul <laughs> Ryan has said he would in the past, but we're not so sure... They really are into it. So I know where you're getting that from. So what (laughs) happened is that there was a New York Times interview where Paul Ryan very specifically talked about the few areas he thinks that Republicans would be willing to uh, negotiate or or with uh, with the president. And he said that he believes the earned income tax credit, uh, which is obviously a subsidy for low wage workers, uh, that that is something that they also would like to expand to childless adults, which is the president's proposal. But then I went to this breakfast with uh, the president of the Club for Growth. And not to say that Club for Growth and, and Heritage, that these outside conservative groups have the same power that they used to have. At this point, Speaker I know Boehner has just rejected. Power. Huh? 
I always assume they still have a lot. They of have power. it on things like immigration. Um, well, right. that's heritage, but but you know, what, at the end of the day, on budgets, the Murray Ryan budget, you know, they they were, they were against that. They were against the, the Cromney bus deal. Uh, they were against establishment Republicans. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. You know, a little bit. Right, Fair and enough. Boehner came out and was just like, "Who do these groups think they are? Like, they ran us into a shutdown and blah, blah, you know." But anyhow, Boehner's right. Th- this the president of of Club for Growth at this breakfast event was just like. No, no, no. The moment I brought up the earned income tax credit as being the one thing Paul Ryan said that he could see them doing without much bartering even, just like that's like a proposal he thinks Republicans can get behind as they start talking more about income inequality. Tougher growth doesn't barter, though. They don't barter. They don't exchange. They, well, that's exactly the thing. They don't exchange it. And the president just straight up said, like, this. that's just more and more welfare so, state. What's that guy's name? Is it Chocula? <laughs> <laughs> it's not Count Chocula. <laughs> it's Macintosh. I should know his first name. So uh, I'm sorry for putting you on the spot on Paul Ryan. But anyway, they're not on board. It's amazing how uh, you could have someone like Paul Ryan. David Macintosh. Is this dead on arrival or is David there room McIntosh. to negotiate? It's David Macintosh. The thing about it is you could everyone could agree that expanding ta- child tax credits and, and working tax credits to people without children is a great idea. There's like broad bipartisan agreement and it's been articulated in the president's budget paul ryan's poverty plan last year tax reform by by dave camp and yet there is no way they would just up and do it because they each side feels that their agreement should win them some other thing that they really like that the other side doesn't what's I just you agree with it, just do that. What's interesting for me is to see how Republicans handle the test of mo- must pass legislation and and moments where there's a showdown or potential showdown over the debt ceiling or funding for the government, which they're toying with right now with the Department of Homeland Security to make a point on Obama's executive action immigration. But, you know, they say we're not going to have another shutdown. We're not going to default the debt ceiling. Now they control both chambers of Congress. They don't have anything to bluff with. Well, previously they had they had a situation where the Senate was controlled by Democrats. So they there was obviously even less room for them to try and extract concessions uh, because they only controlled one third of, of the three branches between the White House and Congress. So now they have majority control in Congress. And it's unclear if they're going to say, okay, well, President Obama, you want this earned income tax credit. You want to invest in infrastructure spending. Well, you know... Well, Mitch McConnell ran on the basis that he was going to forge these deals and make these compromises. Right. But they might use some of these spending or larger spending battles to see if they can extract something more out of the president. Um, and use the power of the purse because that's also Mitch McConnell. So said, then the president that we will still use the power of the purse. Back on the table, and that's what I'm looking forward to. That oh, I think but the, he could. Uh, the prospect. But you of don't put it on the table, having having offered it on negotiations two or three previous times. You certainly don't lead with it now. The grand bargain goblin is out there and more fearsome than ever. Even though. Uh, you hear less about it than you have in previous years when there was a like deficit to- commission and they talked about Social Security. They don't want to talk about it, but I, I think that there is a huge area of agreement that the president and Republican leaders would just rather not discuss, but I would be watchful for can, like Social Security can changes. Can someone be like the grand bargain goblin for Halloween? Chris Chocula should do that. <laughs> like the most DC potential Halloween costume ever. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've seen people come like to parties as like Obama scare and things. So I think the, the, gra- the we do not bargain, have good Halloween parties in Washington. The grand, <laughs> the grand bargain goblin has previously been represented in costume as a giant can, a can that kicks back. <laughs> oh. Yes. Uh, yeah, the good thing about the Grand Bar- Bargain Goblin is that he may be fearsome, but he's also a dumb loser. <laughs> <laughs> Jason, you've written a lot about the various uh, fix-the-debt type groups and their sad campaigns to win hearts and minds. But I, I, I think their message is secretly resonating right now with the people in power. It's always been resonating with the people in power. No, I mean, I mean they're, they, they have more power right now, and... We've made fun of them so much that it's not recognized. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, making fun of them. That can really got laughed off the stage. (laughs) I thought that was pretty, pretty funny stuff. Great costume, everybody. I'm sorry we can't give you a picture, but the guy had a big foam cam and like giant clown shoes. While we are on the topic of costume drama, I think I love this story. This story is great. Okay, I can't believe this actually happened in America in 2015. Aaron Shock, representative from Indiana, Illinois. I know in, uh, Indiana. Really? It's Wait, Indiana. Uh, okay, it's one of the two. I thought big, it's. We're gonna find out. It's Who's Illinois. Right? Oh, I was wrong. Sorry. <laughs> God damn it. Sorry. Absolutely. Anyway. He's from Illinois. Yeah, the, best, um, the best abs in Congress. Best abs in Congress. Um, so that's right, because Peoria, he represents parts of Peoria, right? All right, anyway, he is in trouble because of the way he decorated his office. And the way he decorated his office apparently was inspired by Downton Abbey. In other words, there was, uh, I don't know what, Victoria, Victorian Which, area style decorate, a dark you, red you, wall. When you want to when you want to go out to your constituents and be like, I'm <laughs> not a Washington insider, I'm not an elite. What you definitely, definitely do is decorate your office like an English country manor. Oh, wait a minute, Jason. <laughs> you don't understand Washington- the magic of Downton, though. So I do understand the magic of Downton because uh, I've watched Downton's first three seasons. And you know what? This is Aaron Schock's third year in office. So this is going to be the year where all the plot devices get recycled <laughs> and there's like a bad, you know, subplot. With, and it's, and it's going to get boring and old. A and you're lot gonna be of like, people Am are I gonna tune going in for to the fourth die. year? Right, yes, no, exactly. Like his staff no, no, should be on watch. False narrative alert. False narrative this alert? This decorator was from his district, right? Yeah. The I, decorator I, was Eurotrash LLC. Okay. Let's talk <laughs> that is about amazing. how amazing that is. People, that is amazing. Aaron Schock, <laughs> not an elite. Washington elites decorate their environs with track lighting, chrome appliances, and granite countertops. Uh, you know, a very modern spare look with open floor plans, and Shock is going in the other direction. Way in Shock, the other direction. Shock has got a a claustrophobic, uh, dark red paint scheme, uh, pheasant feathers, it's like salmon, uh, a cluster of wooden frames on the wall with old timey portraits of the founding fathers. So it, many feathers. Like, I can't tell you how many feathers there are in this guy's office. A Washington Post reporter was in the office like, wow, I, I love this. And uh, one of his staffers was like, yes, it is in the style of Downton Abbey. Would you like to see more? Oh and the reporter was like, yes. And he was taking pictures. 
And then higher-ups in, in the land of shock got wind of this and tried to shut it down. And they said, the congressman will not speak to you about his office. So, And that made it, you know, Streisand effect. Yes, exactly. The, the attempt to suppress it made the story... <laughs> Ten times more fabulous well, than it already was. Well, the chief was. of staff tried to get the reporter, Ben Harris, who's great, to delete the pictures from his phone. Oh, yeah. And, no, never going to happen. And and the best part is, I presume, was emailing him, probably forgetting that he's he's either not off the record or there was no agreement to be off the record. So Ben Harris is basically publishing everything, every word that this guy said, which is his total freakout, the chief of staff's freakout over this over this story and and trying to get it to go away and you know he'll the congressman will talk to you but not about the office he'll like talk to you about like policy and it's like no one wants to talk to him about policy right he, now he was actually not like, when you when you find out that his office is a, a, an homage is to anything, Downton is, is there anything legitimately scandalous or corrupt about he this he may have oh, violated house ethics rules oh great yeah. yeah citizens for responsibility and ethics in Washington <laughs> went ahead with the complaint that uh, it was an illegal campaign contribution somehow for him to wow. use this money. Wow. Uh, can we? Can I just say how awesome it is that we, the cliche, how will this play in Peoria <laughs> again and again, but this is literally something that you want to know if it plays in Peoria. I don't think it'll be a bit, you know, Shock it was in a video saying uh, haters going to hate, and he then came out and said, I will, I will pay. <laughs> The services had been donated, apparently, somehow, and that had been part of the scandal. He said, I'll pay for it. Wayne Scotter's going to Wayne Scott. He's not going to take the stuff down, though, is is the real victory here. If, what if you, okay, oh, I, want you, I want you guys to imagine you have a congressional office. How would you decorate it? What, what show would you decorate your room with? What would be the inspiration? For mine? Yeah. Would it be Downton Abbey? I think that's really ambitious. I mean, I don't even know how he thought of that. Congressional I, offices are nice, though. A lot of them have, uh, you I, know, I was, fireplaces in them. I was saying on Twitter that I would do mine, my room, as if it were the movie The Room. <laughs> there would be bad parties. You'd have a football. I'd have a football. Lisa would be tearing me apart the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> in this room, here's where Lisa's tearing me apart. And then I would just have, like, black bars in front of people's bodies. It would be awesome. I get in so much trouble. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it, this is this is one of the craziest and silliest stories in the world. And now and, there was another uh, uh, political office decoration story. Oh God, yes, uh, Bobby Jindal may have been even better. I, I was confused about it. Could you catch me up on what happened with the paintings? I was Bond? super confused about this story because okay. It was like I'm concentrating on my work and like off in the background, like on Twitter, I'm hearing Bobby Jindal's portrait, Bobby Jindal's portrait. So finally I dove in and was like, all right, what the fuck is going on with Bobby Jindal's portrait? Okay, so apparently some reporter took a picture of what he thought was the official portrait of Bobby Jindal. Well, it was, in fact, a portrait of Bobby it, it Jindal was. in Bobby Jindal's office. It was. It was. It was not the official portrait. It was a portrait that was painted by uh, some a big, a big a fan. Constituent. A constituent. Um, and the funny thing about this painting of Bobby Jindal is that he looks super duper Caucasian. Like someone, someone tweeted is like, "Wait, is that a portrait of the dad from Modern Family?" And that's literally what it looked like. It was not a likeness at all. It didn't even really look like white Bobby Jindal. Is what confused me. Yeah, it, it was didn't, just a guy. It was just it, to me. It was looked like a guy. If you okay, if out of out of the context of the story, if you if you had brought.
brought that portrait in front of me and set it down in front of me and been like, who's this a portrait of? There's, there, I would never have said Bobby Chisholm in a million years. And it, and it wouldn't, it was not because he wasn't like blacked up, you know? It was just like, I don't recognize that guy. Um, and then but they were like, Bobby Chisholm's official portrait, for the record, frankly, is kind of pinky too. I, that's what I was going to say. They're like, that's not the official portrait. This is. And it also <laughs> but, did not quite look like him. But so, so some, some, uh, some reporter down in New Orleans actually took a picture of this and tweeted it. And it landed real crossways with Jindal's people who accused him of, like, race baiting over this. And I think it was just like, well— Oh, I didn't know that. Well, this portrait of Bobby Jindal does look like a white dude— like, it's not me. I, I mean, I'm just publishing it. You know, I think that, like, I think that Jindal's people sort of, like, recognize that people are having a good laugh at his boss's expense. And then and then he 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 uh, he he, he, uh, he escalated it to, like, an accusation of, like, the left in their race baiting. And I was like, whoa, what did the left have to do with this? The left was busy on other things. This is something that happened on Twitter, yo. You know, this wasn't something, it wasn't an organized meeting of the left. It's like, today, we take out Bobby Jindal by making fun of a portrait of some guy that made him look made him look white. I think it people just, who are unfamiliar with this phenomenon would be amazed by how frequently a single tweet is held up as a symbol of the entire left with a capital L. Yeah, or the entire That's right. not the way it fair. works. No, it's not how it works. Uh, you haven't, you uh, mean you haven't stood in for the entire left I on right. the, no. the, the Federalist.com? Yeah. We, oh, my God. Yeah, there needs, they do. Yeah, I know. There needs to be a distinction made between Twitter randos and organized political movements uh, <laughs> because because they are two separate things. And honestly, the world is not that interested, would never have been interested in Bobby Jindal's portrait to the extent it was had his people not got in and gotten all mad about it. Um, I mean, this it's, is the, so it's, it's a simple fact. The the portrait, which is not the official portrait, we acknowledge that, is a portrait of a guy who doesn't look like Bobby Jindal. That's so, it. So in both uh, office interior decorating of political person stories, a similar phenomenon occurred in which there was a Streisand effect caused by Carson the butler trying to uh, be a gatekeeper for Lord Grantham <laughs> and preventing, you know, the, the peasants from... Having a look see at <laughs> the decorations, which that, is funny because I think in the real Downton Abbey Castle, like you can go and have a tour. There's a real. That's not like a movie set. Oh, it's this, not. It's definitely a real. There exists, and there are tours um, in the UK. I don't remember what castle it was, but it was. They definitely have picked like a place that was not just. It wasn't just erected for the, as a set. It's a real. That's awesome. Thing. I, I, had no I mean, idea. I would love to go, but I'm not going to go just for that. I you know will. what? If I'm in the neighborhood, though, let's let's all agree that we will go and visit Downton Abbey, and while we're there, we won't say anything that touches off a measles outbreak. Let's also agree <laughs> that Edith is always and forever going to be like the saddest character in totally. the history of characters. Yeah, she's yeah, having a totally rough season. Is. When is she not yes, having a rough? She's always season? having a rough season. Yeah. When is her life not just terrible? Yeah, I, uh, her sadness is a lot less trying than just Cora. Uh, oh God, God Arthur Cora. does a great Cora impression. Like, oh Lord Grantham, what should we do? <laughs> that was I was actually pretty decent. It's like oh, because she's American, but like aristocratic, and just has right. the most weird, like fake. I don't know. It's like she watched like videos of like when Madonna wanted to have a British accent, and was like, "That's what I'm going to talk like." It doesn't sound right. It just doesn't sound right. 
Am I missing much by not having seen any of the fourth season of Downton Abbey? It's been a great season. It's been yes. good. It's back on track, I think, after like the disappointing sort of previous one. I agree, and and it's back on track because they're not holding back with trashy plot twists. All right, well, there you go. We have fully endorsed season four of Downton Abbey. Thanks, guys. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta, Chris Gentleviso, and Adriana Usero. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we are joined by HuffPost senior politics reporters Arthur Delaney and Sabrina Sabiki. So That Happened is available on iTunes, so check us out in the iTunes store and please look for the Huffington Post's whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.